0: Jonah chapter one, again, we're going to look at verses four through 16, but I'm going to begin reading in verse one, just these three verses, and then all the way through verse 16. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city and call out against it for their evil has come out before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the, on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each one called out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought, or perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may grow quiet for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Some of you have experienced or know someone who has or even is currently experiencing what we would call in in our vernacular a downward spiral. Bad decisions and difficult circumstances drive you or drive a loved one to choose a path that leads to destruction. Things start to fall apart. Your closest friends feel distant. Your work feels unsatisfying. If you're a Christian, your Bible reading and your prayer life dwindle to the point of non-existence. But something when we observe in ourselves a downward spiral or observe in someone that we love a downward spiral something that is always true is that it doesn't just happen it always begins somewhere a simple sin always ignites this process of a downward spiral and to be more exact what we see in Jonah is exactly what happens when we kick off a downward spiral We ignore God's word. That's what always kicks off this downward spiral. Jonah here is an example of this. He goes into a, what we call again, a downward spiral in chapter one. Last week, we explored the simple sin that moved Jonah to the edge and then over. He understanding exactly what God was requiring of him. If we see in those first three verses, God calls to him. He came to Jonah and said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call it against it for their evil has come up before me. We see Jonah do the exact opposite of what God tells him to do. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, but he turns and goes the other way. He goes down to Joppa and boards a ship going to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction that God had called him to. Jonah is provoked to jealousy. Jonah is provoked to jealousy because he knows that when God turns his attention away from the nation of Israel, when God turns his attention away from his people, uh, he uh, intends to judge them. Jonah knows that generation upon a generation of sin in Israel has provoked jealousy in Israel or uh, has b- provoked God to jealousy uh, over Israel. And so Deuteronomy 32, what Moses says is that is that when God is provoked to jealousy because of the sin of Israel, he will turn his attention away from Israel and provoke Israel to jealousy. Jonah is the first one to see this because he's the prophet that God has called to go to Nineveh, which is the capital city of Assyria, one of Israel's primary enemies. Really, the largest threat at this time to Israel. Jonah knows that God is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He says as much if you turn the page or just look down the page at chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is it not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is upset <laughs> at the character of God because it means that the Ninevites in chapter 3, when we get there, will repent. And that through their repentance, God is showing favor and mercy. He is showing patience and kindness. He is showing abounding steadfast love to a people other than Jonah's people. Jonah is jealous for God's attention. Jonah knows that if God is sending him a prophet of Israel to Nineveh, that God was planning to show the Ninevites mercy. Oh no. What was that? Okay. I'm good. I'll just, I'll stand very still. This makes Jonah mad. This upsets Jonah. So Jonah takes his first step away from God's presence. Look at verse three. He paid the fare and went down into it, the ship that is, to go with them, the sailors that is, to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. And remember last week when we talked about the presence of the Lord, the presence of God. It isn't indicating here a concentration levels of God. Like, oh, there's more God over here, so I'm going to run away. No, no, that's not all. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. God is in Joppa, he's in Tarshish, and he's in Nineveh. And he's in Jerusalem, and he's, he's wherever Jonah is. God's presence is not some mystical air that we have to enter into. God's presence is means here specifically to be within the will of God. Or we could say God's presence is to be, to be more concrete, God's presence is to be in submission and obedience to God's word. We desire God's presence because when we understand that God is present with us, it means that we are operating within God's will. If you're looking at God's word regularly and ignoring it, or ignoring God's word altogether, Simply ignoring it, there is no way for you to be in this sense, in the presence of God. You cannot live a life of rebellion and resistance and be within God's presence. It's impossible. Jonah runs away from God's presence, not in the sense that he runs away from concentration of God, but he runs away from God's presence in the sense that he resists and rebels against the will of God that had come to him. Jonah's first step away from God's presence is to refuse to obey God's word that came to him in chapter 1, verse 1. And so what this results in, this is the sin that kicks off Jonah's downward spiral. Jonah goes on a descent, and that descent will cause him to press right up against death itself. If you go to chapter 2, verse 2, and we'll get there next week, but if you look at verse 2 and chapter 2, Jonah cries out out of the belly of Sheol. This is, he's in the fish here, but this is the lower, below the earth area, close to death. He cried out to God, and he hears God hears his voice. But his downward spiral brings him to this point where he is pressed up right against death itself. The text gives us clear indicators that this downward spiral is happening, that he's headed on a descent. And when Jonah attempts to flee from the presence of the Lord, he is always in the text, he is always going down. Look at verse 2, or no, excuse me, look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it. He goes down into the ship. He is on a descent. Look at verse 5. Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he had lain down and he was fast asleep. He's on a descent. And then in chapter 2, verse 2 again, he he is at rock bottom in the belly of Sheol, in the belly of the fish. Jonah cries out to God from the depths of Sheol. And the depths of Sheol, the lowest place that Jonah can go, he's pressed up against death. This is all important information for us to see how chapter 1 unfolds. The the narrative that occurs in in verses 4 through 16 in in chapter 1. And so there are three things that I want to point out to you this morning. Three things that are contained within here. And this is uh, uh, wonderful. Um, for an English major like me, I love these sorts of things because the way that this is structured, the way that this chapter is structured points to so many larger truths throughout all of Scripture. It's really a wealth. It, it's a, It's a. We get to mine this together this morning, and I'm really excited. So there are three things to point out this morning. Um, the first is this. Jonah's descent as a parable. Second is this, Jonah's sin as a leaven, and third, Jonah's journey as a type. We're going to focus on that first one quite a bit because I think that one's going to help us really understand the rest of the book and then the the other two a little bit less so. But we use these three headings to structure our time together this morning. So the first one, Jonah's descent as as a parable. Jonah's descent as a parable. What happens in chapter 1, what I just read, what happens in chapter 1, verses 4 through 16, unfolds in this narrative story type that almost feels like it's a story that Jesus himself would tell during his earthly ministry. And we call those stories parables. And the word parable literally means, ish, to cast alongside. So Jesus would use parables to illustrate truth. But also, he says, he uses parables to conceal truth as well from those who do not believe. In Matthew 13, the disciples ask Jesus why he speaks in parables. And Jesus replies to them, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. God alone gives eyes to see truth. Those who have eyes to see the truth that the parable is illustrating understand the truth. But those who are indifferent to the truth or who are blinded to it will not understand the truth. Jonah's descent here in chapter 1, his downward spiral that he goes on, is a story cast alongside a larger truth. It's a parable to illustrate a greater reality. Now, when you hear the word parable, you might think, okay, so not historically accurate. In this instance, no, this is absolutely, we should take this as with historical accuracy. The events of this book actually happened. But what God does oftentimes in our lives and in scripture is he takes even historically accurate things that were lived out by the characters in And orchestrates real historical events in particular ways so that uh, we would be able to describe Jonah's descent as an enacted parable, something that actually happened, but can be used as an illustration to point out larger truth lived out here by Jonah. In order to understand the greater realities, though, that are being pointed to, there's a couple of key ideas that we have to understand about the Old Testament in understanding what is going on here and the larger truth behind what's contained. These things are all throughout the Old Testament, these ideas. The first is just the idea of the sea and what the sea represents for ancient Israel. For ancient Israel, the sea, where Jonah is going, he goes down to Joppa to get on a ship. They go out to sea, and a storm comes up. But for ancient Israel, the sea was an unknowable entity. It represented oftentimes, in the Old Testament, it oftentimes represents a Gentile or a non-Jewish nation or the nations in general. The scripture reading that Anton read this morning from Psalm 65 praises God who stills the roaring seas, the roaring waves, the tumult of the peoples. You, you can see that he links together in that, in that Psalm, he links together the seas, the roaring waves, and the tumult of the peoples. All of that goes together for, that, for David in Psalm 65. All of it goes together. King David equates roaring seas and peoples. Peoples here refer to nations or people groups. God is sovereign over the sea and over every people group across the world. He is the one true God. He's not just the God of the Hebrews. He's the one true God. And Psalm 2, David says, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Why did the, he, David says, why did the nations rage? What else rages? The, the ocean, the sea. The sea rages. He's using sea language to describe Gentile nations, non-Jewish people groups. Just like the unpredictable sea rises in a rage, so the nations unpredictably rise in rage against Israel. So by going to Joppa, by going to Joppa and boarding a ship, Jonah is illustrating the very thing he's trying to get away from. He's supposed to go to a raging nation, the raging Assyrians in their capital city of Nineveh, And he goes to the sea, and that's representative of Nineveh. A nation that is poised to rise up and rage against Israel. Also, for the ancient Israelites, the sea represents judgment. So it represents the Gentile nations, but it also represents judgment. During the Exodus, God, you know this story well, God parts the Red Sea, and the Israelites pass through on dry ground. But what happens to Pharaoh's army? The Red Sea closes over the top of them, destroying them in judgment. The Red Sea there represents the waters of judgment. God's people walked through judgment unharmed. God's enemies were swallowed up by judgment. We see this imagery again in Christian baptism. Over and over and over again in scripture. When you're immersed under the water in Christian baptism and then you come up out of the water, you're making a statement about the reality that you pass through the waters of judgment to be raised with Christ on the last day. For those outside of Christ, Christian baptism is a sign and a symbol of condemnation because the waters of judgment for those outside of Christ will drown them. But for the Christian, for the one who has trusted Christ, those will be raised to walk in newness of life. You can see this theme throughout scripture. The sea representing the Gentile nations that go that rise up in rage against God's people and the sea as judgment, waters of judgment that need to be passed through. For ancient Israel, the sea represented the other nations of the earth and judgment. God will use Assyria and Babylon and other nations to bring judgment upon Israel. But God will ultimately cause Israel to pass through the waters of judgment. He'll bring them back into the land like he did during the Exodus. Jonah goes to sea. A great storm arises. The storm is called by pitching Jonah overboard. Jonah going to sea represents Jonah going to Nineveh. The great storm is Assyrians raging against Nineveh. And the calming of the storm. Is the repentance of Nineveh? So, what happens in chapter one here corresponds directly what's happening in chapter three. If you've read through Jonah, you know that Jonah goes into Israel, he or goes into Nineveh. He walks in, he starts calling out against Nineveh, and they repent. They repent. The other key idea from the Old Testament that we need to understand is the repentance of the nations. God isn't concerned just with the Israelites repenting. He's concerned with the whole world turning to him and repenting. One of God's primary purposes for the Jewish people, one of God's primary purposes for the Israelites, is that they would be a light to the nations, to show who he is to the peoples of the world, so that they might turn to him and repent. And know the one true and living God. The sailors here in this story represent the nations of the earth. And verse 5 tells us look at verse 5 they, it tells us that each one cries out to his God in the storm. This is a, a group of individuals from all over the world who worship different gods, not the true God, but worship different gods. The solution of the sailors is to, by chance, cast lots, hoping that one of these gods picks the right one, the one who has caused this problem. But God is not mocked, and the lot then falls to Jonah. He is, of course, the reason the guys are in the mess that they're in. They question Jonah, and Jonah answers their questions, but note how quickly they accept Jonah's words. Note how quickly in verse 10. Uh, they accept Jonah's words. The men were exceeding, after Jonah tells them who he is, the men and uh, were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Again, this is a wild group of guys serving all sorts of gods, but immediately they have some kind of recognition that in order to get out of this mess, they need to cry out to this guy's God. Jonah tells him to throw him in. They seem like nice guys. They're like, hang on a bit. Maybe it'll be fine. They don't do anything. And then they ultimately do throw him in. And as soon as they throw him in, the storm calms down. This is a picture of repentance. A picture of acknowledging that God is the one who can, the only one who can save. A picture that the Lord, the Hebrew God, the one true God that Jonah says that he fears, really dude, do you really fear him? Like the one true God that Jonah says that he fears, the God who made the sea and the dry land, another reference to the sea, Gentile nations and uh, and Hebrew people. They throw him overboard and the sea immediately calms down. The repentance of the sailors Acknowledging God as the one true God brings salvation to the sailors. Again, this will be played out again in chapter 3 in Nineveh. Just like the Gentile sailors repent and believe and were saved, so will the Ninevites repent and believe and be saved. Through the events in chapter 1, despite fleeing from God's task, Jonah illustrates exactly what God intends to do in Nineveh. Jonah thinks he's going the other way, and a bunch of people get saved. Mercifully, God gives the nations an opportunity to repent. A bunch of nations represented here on this ship. Calming the storm, God prevents the waters of judgment from consuming these people. The events of chapter 1 then illustrate what God plans to do through Jonah in Nineveh. Despite Jonah's descent and downward spiral, despite running from the presence of the Lord, despite resisting God's word, God's purposes are accomplished through Jonah. The second thing that we see here is that Jonah's sin is a leaven. Jonah's sin is Again, we said it right out of the gate. Jonah's sin is to refuse to obey the word of the Lord that came to him. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 5 says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, he's not talking about baking. He's talking about the church in both instances. And he's talking, in the case of leaven, he's talking specifically about sin. Leaven is like a yeast. It's something that's added to bread dough to make it rise. Paul's point in both of these instances is that for the local church, like us, like Corinth, like Galatia, the local church, when it tolerates sin, it has a deadly effect. Not only to the one who's doing the sinning within the local church, but to the entirety of the church when he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump he what he's saying is that unchecked sin resisting god's word will have an effect on everyone around the one doing the sinning so consider jonah this is exactly what happens here in in this passage jonah's sin immediately puts these sailors into harm's way he immediately puts them into a life and death situation Jonah refuses to obey the word of the Lord and now the sailors are out at sea in a deadly storm Jonah's downward spiral is dragging others down with him his sin is like leaven and it's having the effect on others One of the biggest lies, friends, one of the biggest lies that Satan will tell you is that you can sin in a vacuum. That you can sin and it won't affect others. Even sin that you feel like is really secret. It may not be public. It may be in complete, you feel like it's in complete secret. There's no one who could know possibly what's going on in your heart. Satan will try and convince you that you can sin and that it will not affect other people. And the world has bought this hook, line, and sinker, and we, friends, must resist this notion that I'm free to do anything as I like as long as it's not hurting anyone. But, friends, the deception is here that there is never an instance where you can sin and it will not hurt other people. And in some instances, devastate them. You think selfishly that your sin is only contained within you. Friends, it's not. It never is. No exceptions. Jonah's sin leavened the lump. The sailors became the collateral damage, pressed right up against death with Jonah himself as he fled from the presence of the Lord. The final thing I want to point out this morning is Jonah's journey as a type. Jonah's journey as a type. This is an idea that we're going to carry throughout this short book and that Jesus even picks up in in the Gospels, referencing Jonah specifically. We'll get there. But a type, when I use the word type, I mean a type is a character or anything really that points forward to a larger, fuller expression in the future. Sometimes we might refer to this as foreshadowing. Something that occurs early in the story to tell us something about something that's going to happen later in the story. Or a person who has a particular set of uh, characteristics who later will become important or seen in a greater way. Jonah's journey is a type of Jesus' journey. And I'm going to give you one example here this morning because it's like right there. Anton read earlier from Luke chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Jesus and his disciples get into a boat. Jonah also gets into a boat, not with men he knows, but he gets into a boat. Both Jonah and Jesus fall asleep. John, are you up there? Can you put up the, the text? Thanks, you were right on it. Very good. Let me just read this again. One day he got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came uh, came down on the lake and they were filling. I'm sorry, my eyes. Okay, I'm just going to go there. Here we go. Or there, it's right there. That's much larger. And they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging seas, and they ceased, and there was a call. Next one? Is there another one? Okay, never mind. Okay, we didn't get the whole thing. So, there's a couple of ideas here. Jonah, like Jesus, falls asleep. The captain comes to Jonah and says, look at the text. He says, arise, in verse 6, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. The disciples come to Jesus and they use almost the same language, a little shorter, but they say, master, master, we are perishing. The captain tells Jonah to cry out to his God. The disciples cry out to their God who is in the boat with them. Jonah also calms the sea in a sense by going overboard. Jesus simply speaks to the wind and the waves, and they're calm. The sailors on Jonah's boats were told, we, uh, right at the end here, that they feared the Lord, in verse 16, they feared the Lord exceedingly. The disciples were afraid, the text tells us in Luke 8, the disciples were afraid. And marveled when Jesus calms the sea. The language is far too similar for us not to draw a parallel here. Luke knows Jonah. He knows exactly what's going on in this, and then he's there's this observation of all of these parallels. These words here in Jonah chapter one are moving us to a greater reality in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who doesn't calm the sea by being thrown in, but the one who calms the sea simply with his words. The one who authored creation is the one who can calm it. Jonah's words in verse 9, if you look at verse 9, are telling. He says, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land the God of the heavens, the one who made everything, the Gentile nations and the nation of Israel, would this one not be able to simply speak and bring the meteorological chaos back into order? Who then is this, the disciples say at the end of that passage, that he commands even winds and waters, and they obey him? Of course, it's God himself. Of course, it's God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Jonah's journey here points us forward to Jesus Christ, the one whose sin didn't cause the storm, but the one who can silence it. So these three things, these three things that we see here, Jonah's uh, Jonah's descent as a parable, his sin as a leaven, and his journey as a type, those three things lead us then to draw a handful of conclusions this morning. The first is this. The first is this. God will bring about his purposes despite faithless responses. Jonah's response to the word of God was faithless. He chose to do the other thing. He sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. He tried to run from submitting and obeying to the word of God. But through it, he goes on the ship and God winds up saving a bunch of pagans. Through it, God drew men, the sailors of the ship, from all nations, all people groups. God drew them to himself. Remember the theme of this book, that salvation belongs to the Lord. How will God bring about salvation? In this instance, is it's through the faithless response of Jonah, and again, this points us forward to Jesus. In John chapter twelve, verse thirty-two, Jesus says, "And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself." Jesus knew that unbelieving responses to his ministry would would cause those people to crucify him, to lift him up from the earth, and yet. Through the act of unbelief, through those who killed the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus would pave the way through all nations of the earth to repent, believe, and be saved from sin and death. All kinds of people, through the faithless response to Jesus' ministry, will be drawn to Jesus himself and be saved. Salvation belongs to the Lord. To be clear, It must be our aim when confronted with God's word not to respond like Jonah, but in fact to respond in faith when we hear the word of the Lord. But also to know that God's plans are not disrupted through us, through our faithless actions because of our sin. We should not think of ourselves that highly. The Creator God is not limited by you. And in fact, He will turn your faithless responses, into a way, always, for him to obtain glory. So first, God will bring about his, his purposes despite faithless responses. The second thing I want you to walk away with this morning, this is where we started. The downward spiral of sin always drags others into it. The downward spiral of sin always drags other t- others into it. Jonah refused to obey when God when God's word came to him. And that had an effect, a devastating, nearly devastating, entirely effect on those in the ship with him. Downward spirals always begin by ignoring God's word. When you nurse a sin, it bumps you closer and closer to the edge. Friends, there is no sin that doesn't move you closer to this downward spiral. When you ignore God's word, you inevitably find yourself teetering on the edge of disaster. It may seem innocuous. It may seem like it doesn't matter all that much. But friends, it does. Brothers and sisters, it must be understood that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Do you think that your grumbling and complaining about work won't set the tone at the dinner table? Do you think that coveting your neighbor's stuff won't create an environment in your household that is rife with discontent? Do you think that your slanderous tongue will not cause others to believe lies about victims of venomous speech? Do you think that casually viewing pornography will have no effect on your marriage? Do you think that drinking alcohol in excess will not cause others to stumble? And if you're thinking to me if you're thinking you like lighten up a little bit, consider the fact that Jonah nearly dragged all of these men on the ship to hell with him. Our chief problem isn't thinking that isn't thinking that sin is too big of a deal, but thinking that sin is no big deal thinking that this little sin, it won't hurt anyone. But nothing could be further from the truth, friends. Fathers who dabble in sexual sin often wonder why their sons have no self-control in matters of purity, even when that sin has been done exclusively in secret. Mothers who make their children little gods serving them at all costs, catering to their whims, wonder why their children's spouses and their marriages fall apart when their spouses don't serve them at all costs like mom did. You may think that your unforgiving attitude towards others or life of self-pity isn't destructive, but your words and your actions ooze the poison that you yourself drink. Friends, we must not ignore God's clear commands given to us in Scripture like Jonah did. And I fear that there are those in this room who are ignorant of what God requires of you in his word. Or that you have been lied to and told that those requirements are just suggestions. Or to get rid of them altogether because we don't want to be legalists. Friends, it is not legalism to obey the word of the Lord. Legalism is trusting in those actions for your salvation. Don't trust in the works of the law for salvation, it cannot provide it for it. But trust in the person of Jesus Christ. And then be free. Be free to obey all that God commands you in his word. We are commanded to love one another. When you sin, you never sin in a vacuum. It is not possible to nurse sin. It is not possible to dabble in sin. It is not possible to sin in any capacity. It is not possible to love your sin more than you love the Lord your God, even in a little bit. The leaven goes to work and we fail immediately to love others. The downward spiral of sin always drags others into it. There's good news here. There's good news here because even if you're here this morning and you've been in this downward spiral and you're Close to, if not rock bottom. Even if you have a loved one who's in a downward spiral and is close to, if not at rock bottom, the good news is this Jesus knows the way out of the lowest places. Jesus knows the way out of the lowest places. The hope of this situation, whether it's you or a loved one, the hope of the situation is first. And only Jesus Christ. Through resisting God's word, you may have drummed up a pretty bad scenario. And you've brought a bunch of others along for the ride. And your selfishness, you've dragged others with you to the doorstep of hell. And you're ringing the doorbell of death. And you're beginning to realize it. What's the way out? What is the way out? More resolve, better practices, tears, and promises to do better? No. The only way out is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ knows his way out of the lowest place. Friends, we celebrated this a couple weeks ago on Resurrection Sunday. Jesus Christ walked out of the grave, the lowest place. He bore all of the sins of the world upon himself. Never has anyone ever gone lower, and he walked out. And he walked out. Jesus speaks to the wind and waves and brings them back into order. The chaos and suffering and scorched earth that your sin brought about has been dealt with in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In him is hope and healing and in him alone is the way out. How? All that sin that caused so much pain to you and to others, Jesus took on himself on the cross. All that sin that brought so much pain to you and others, he took to the grave. And though it put him in the grave, the lowest place thinkable, Jesus knew his way out and he left that sin there in the ground. Friends, Jesus can bring you out of the lowest place. Friends, Jesus can bring your loved ones, those that you care about more deeply than you thought any you could care about anyone on the earth. Jesus knows his way out of the lowest place and no one has descended so low in this life that Jesus can't bring them out. Come to Christ even now. From your low place, call out to him. He knows his way out. Trust in Christ fully. He is the way. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder of this text. God, we thank you for a reminder that our sin has devastating effects, not only for us alone, but for those around us. God, would you cause us to trust you and you alone? Would you cause us to fall on your mercy and your grace? Recognizing that it is not us who can make these things happen or conjure them in and of ourselves, but recognizing that you made a way through Jesus Christ. God, would we not this week put off turning from our sin? God, would we not put off or downplay or seek to be ignorant of the severity of our sin? God, but would we see it fully so that we may rejoice even more fully in the understanding of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ? God, would you transform us to be more like him Not resisting and rebelling against your word, but coming in joyful obedience to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.